I'm Michael Laurie, and you're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. Hello and welcome to the final Ulster Rugby Roundup, not just of 2019, but also of the decade. I'm Adam McHenry, stepping into the host chair once more, while regular compare Gareth Hanna sums himself in the glorious surrounds of Lurgan. As we look back on a big win over Connacht, ahead to a big game against Munster and across 2019 as a whole for this Ulster team. Joining me to do so, our regular Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley. Hello, how are we? And Michael Sadler. Hi, hi everybody. As I said, we will take a look towards that huge final Interpro against Munster at Kingspan Stadium on Friday a little bit later, and I'll also be asking the fellows what their favourite memory from the past 12 months has been, while also tackling some of your listener questions to round off the year. But first, we cast our minds back to Friday night, and a first interprovincial win of the season for Ulster as they put Connacht to the sword to the tune of 35-3 at Kingspan Stadium. Tries from Alan O'Connor, Billy Burns, Robert Balakoon, Rob Herring and Nick Timoney, along with 10 combined points from the boots of John Cooney and Bill Johnson, helped Ulster to a bonus point win to round off the year. Uh, but we're going to start with the news that broke on Monday afternoon. Uh, Paddy McAllister cited for his tackle on Marcel Katsia that forced the Springbok number 8 out of the game in the 21st minute. Um, Let's just get it out of the way now. We know there was no malice in the tackle. We know Paddy McAllister from his time here. He wasn't trying to deliberately injure Marcel Kutsia, and there have been a few people who have suggested that, which just is not true. Um, but the incident probably should have been picked up and properly dealt with by the officials at the time. Would that be fair to say, Michael? Um, you could say that, yes, you could say that. Um, it wasn't. Uh, hence, we're in the situation we are now, where he's been cited. Um, I don't think anyone would be greatly shocked by the sighting. Um, actually, um, Callister also left the field shortly afterwards, and I was told possibly as a result of that particular incident as well, it didn't do him any good, but clearly the main concern was with Marcel, and we don't know at this juncture the extent of uh, whatever damage may or may not have been done to him. Do you think... I hesitate to use the words get away with it, but do you think because it was in the build-up to the try, it was possibly overlooked? I don't know really how it can have been because obviously whoever was in charge of the replays on the big screen sort of made sure that it was very much flagged anyway that it had happened and the crowd obviously doing their bit as well to bring it to the referee's attention. So to be honest, I thought at the time it was strange that it didn't get looked at. Um... Obviously, just in the sense of where we are with the game, to not even have a look at it, I thought it was strange. And as you say, wouldn't for a second suspect that there was anything, any intent from Paddy McAllister. He is genuinely one of the nicer, <laughs> nicer people going. Like, uh, but it was dangerous, and obviously, that's why there's been a sighting. Well, we'll. Park that there, the decision will be made and we'll leave it up to that. We'll focus more on the action that took place after that. And I think even though it was a 35 points put on the board by Ulster, we have to start with something else that had 35 and that 35 phase defensive set before half time. I mean, at that stage, the scoreline was still 14 3, so the game was very much in the balance. And for Ulster to keep Connacht at bay for that long was a massive achievement, especially whenever you add in the context of them scoring twice in the first 10 minutes of the second half as well. 
Michael, for you, where does that rank in terms of the defensive displays from Ulster that you've seen? Oh, well, very highly. Uh, very highly. In fact, you, you've trumped me now because it probably was going to feature when you asked me that question at the end of, uh, of the podcast about the, the, one of the best moments. Um, you just, it, it, it seemed that it, it seemed that they couldn't resist, and yet they did. Now, speaking to some of the Connacht boys later, who said that they're, they they had a bit of a rabbit in the headlights moments there, really, where there were opportunities which did open up to them, but they didn't take them. But nevertheless, Ulster were double teaming. They were getting back up on their feet. They were scrambling. They were knocking them back. Um, it was a, it really really was. It, it I think it, there's no doubt it set the tone for then what followed. Connacht, uh, if they'd scored there. Well, I think Dan McFarren said afterwards, hey, we would have still scored potentially 35 points, but the important thing was that we didn't let them in. They lost whatever uh, feeling they had for this for this game at that particular point. They came out in the second half, they weren't the same. And uh, as you rightly point out, some very quick points put on the board by Ulster, finished it, lock, stock and barrel. That moment created, I suppose, the momentum to do that. It sucked the life out of Connacht. You would have thought it would have done so, had, had an effect on Ulster as well. But clearly, when you're knocking people down, uh, and you, then you skip into the changing room at half time, having conceded zero, is an enormous psychological boost, no matter how sore you might be coming out. And also, if I remember right, I don't think they actually shipped any injuries at that point either, because the injuries to Louis and Marcel happened obviously earlier in the game. So that was also another win win for them that they survived that. They all survived it intact. And they went in seemingly incredibly without conceding a point. Um, Connick, I think, did have that one, uh, you know, when they, they, they mucked uh, up. The crossfield the, kick the, the to crossfield Stephen kick Fitzgerald. When he yeah. over, kind of overran it, I think. Um, that looked like a nailed on, had to be. And, of course, remember the other thing about it um, was that Rob Herring's off the field at this point as well. So they're 14 men. And we all know how much they practice this. But in that moment, in the white heat of that moment, with Connick all over their line, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was a very, very impressive defensive set. But again, I go back to my original point, which was that it was extremely impressive. Yes, they had 14 men. Connacht had opportunities to score, which they singularly failed to take themselves. So, you know, um, but that doesn't take anything away from that, uh, that effort. I'm sure you would probably agree with that. I mean, you were, you were watching this and probably thinking, yep, they're going to get over now. We're going to have a try. <laughs> Yeah, because obviously you were waiting for half time and mm-hmm. I was off, but sort of Bosman's holiday, so I was here. So it was well, we should have whereabouts were you? Like, where were you standing? Uh, we were on the uh, West Terrace 22, so um, had it looking very much the other way, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Watching it from a distance, I suppose. But yeah, I think you could almost sense that deflation from Connacht as well, I think. Um, because, as you say, Michael, it would have been fourteen ten with the rest of the Sinbin to see out, and then the swing in momentum from that situation to Balakun scoring five minutes into um, the second half. So obviously, still there was the bonus point to secure at that stage, but that felt like the game was over as a contest, and it would have been very much a live proposition had it gone the other way. So. That was, I suppose, the winning of the game. And Adam, you make the point that, you know, you score five tries and thirty-five points, but everybody's talking about one defensive set. But that's because that's how, I suppose, pivotal that period of the game was. Because you go from it hanging in the balance to five minutes later, it just being like, 
when are we going to get the bonus point and get our frontliners off and save them for next week? Actually, I think within because of that set as well, when Connick did try that, that was more of a, a sort of knee-jerk, almost a panic. They were losing belief that they could do this themselves, so they tried to do something. I don't even know if he had to do that, because Balakum was defending, I think, a come in. So they could have potentially put it through the hands and still, I think, had the, some space to work with. Yeah. So I, I think Connacht also hit the panic button. Not the defending team, which you would kind of expect to under such stress, uh, but they were the ones who actually blinked. Uh, I, I, I don't think it was the wisest idea for, I think the young lad has Conor Fitzgerald, yes. for him, uh, who's been in, in front of Jack Cardy, to probably put boot the ball at that mm-hmm particular moment they needed perhaps a more experienced head to go hang on a minute there is space out there let's move it but look again like I don't want to take that away from Ulster it was an absolutely um, awesome uh, several I mean how many minutes was it how many minutes was it six seven it minutes was something like that maybe more seven mm-hmm. it was just over seven minutes yeah. because they started yeah. attacking 33 and a half and it went on to just after the clock went dead so and the seven. other thing that's worth noting is normally in these situations Perhaps the attacking team would make the mistake, you know, or somebody, that, you know, Ulster in the end still had the energy to win a turnover, which is how they got the ball off the park. That's how the half ended. I think it was was it Timoney and Reedy got Reedy, over yeah. somebody, and you know, it was just incredible. You wouldn't have thought that they would have been so fatigued at that point that for the game to end, tech, you know, they would have been hoping Connacht would might make a mistake, knock it on, do something like that. But they didn't. They still had enough to go there and win a turnover penalty and then get off. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely, you know, hats off to them for that. I just want to throw a few stats in here because I watched it back and I just I was very interested to see who came up with the most tackles and who was doing the most work. Like Marty Murr made seven tackles, Rob Herring made seven, Matty Ray, Sean Reedy, Alan O'Connor all made six, Jack McGrath five, uh, Treadwell, John Cooney made five tackles. Like, John Cooney was right... I was really impressed with how he was marshalling the defence the whole time. If you watch it back, he's always around every breakdown, but he's always pointing out to other people where he needs to go. So even off the ball, you know, whenever Ulster don't have the ball, he's looking at the space, he's looking where other people need to go, and he's directing them, and then he comes up with some big hits. And the most important thing that I think was I sort of outlined six important hits that Ulster made that I think... Stop trying to... Saturday night. <laughs> go out. Anyway, go on. Um... But one of the most impressive ones that I think went under the radar was in the 26th phase, Jack McGrath is beside the post protector yeah. and Dominic Robertson-McCoy dives for the for the post yes. and he tries to score. And McGrath not only stops him, mm. he then manages to kind of wriggle in between the ball and the post to stop it. Yeah. And McCoy's pushing away at him, trying to get it underneath him, but McGrath stops him. It was just... I'm just so impressed by, you know, the pack mentality mm. and the entire team <clears throat> defence that it's not just, you know, one person that's mm. coming up with loads of hits and getting around the park. You know, it's everyone. No, nobody in the pack had less than four tackles. And I think Nick Timoney, because he's buzzing around trying to get a turnover, yeah. I don't think he actually makes a tackle for the first sort of two and a half minutes of the defensive set. Yeah. And then he starts coming up with them. I was just really impressed with, yeah. you know, how everyone chipped into that defensive effort. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like a Saracens Wolfpack mentality, or maybe better not mention them. <laughs> <laughs> Is there copyright on that? No. Um, but yes, so the defensive side yeah. we've talked about. Now we move on to the offensive side. Has that almost been forgotten about because of the the defensive side? I mean, what did you make of the attacking display? Given that they scored five tries, they were down to 
14 men for that long spell. Mm. Um, and I thought that they scored one of their tries while they were down to 14 men as well. So yeah. well, what did you make of the attacking performance? Like Billy Burns' try was one of the nicer ones that mm. they've scored this yeah. season. Like Probably not as good as the one off the scrum against Hardabins a few weeks ago, but to have those tries sort of backed up um, in close proximity, I feel like, is a good sign that um, that... I suppose accuracy that Don McFarlane talks about um, and the execution that Don McFarlane talks about as being the big difference between a team at their level and a team at Leinster's level, that they're getting an awful lot closer to that. Like I know I think Sean Reedy was joking with you guys that he was actually looking for um, Cooney for his yeah. offload. But, it was uh, there actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you didn't see anything. Uh, no, but well, it's it just still a very nice passage mm-hmm. of play and some of the tries that they scored um, were quite eye. So some of the tries that they scored over these past three or four weeks have been qu- quite eye catching. Well, just so that you mentioned sort of settling into that sort of style now, Ulster are now in a run where they've scored at least three tries in each of their last five games. So is is that a sign that they're kind of settling into what what the coaches are trying to get them to do from an attacking sense? I think they've just certainly hit a bit more form and a bit more cohesion I think it was quite um, there's an awful lot of chopping and changing and everything was quite stunted during the World Cup period not just because of the players you had missing and the nature of the opposition that you were playing but you had guys like um, McCluskey in and out of the team with various injuries you know Marcel was missing and I think without over complicating things or equally oversimplifying things when Ulster have McCluskey and Marcel creating space for people, there's a lot more room to operate. And you don't now, obviously, at the start of the season, some of the dropped passes and stuff came when there was nobody around anybody. But um, I think it's a combination of those things and even just building into the season a bit more. Everybody seems to be in a bit more of a rhythm. And yeah, I would agree with you that it, you know, it does seem whatever two months it has been since that monster game where you were like this team looks an awful lot better when the other team has the ball to now they've still got that uh, solid defensive base as we've seen and talked about there but they look like they're um, probably just more comfortable in executing compared to how they were um, really in the autumn rather than the winter comfortable and confident I would say you can sense that there isn't any panic anymore there isn't any I'm not saying mistakes of course they're mistakes but they seem to have built some form of mental resolve whereby they know they can turn a game with just a move you know that they have the potential to do that if if it's needed and they also will have the potential to grind as well if that is also needed because you're getting combinations of, of this and yes from time to time they're going to ship defeats like they did at Leinster big defeats, cheaters, but I think the point's already been made that even when they've been beaten they've managed to come away with something as well they're not mm. surrendering so oh, I hate to say fight every inch I'm just <laughs> that, that's come back in but the, it's more than that now the, the, there seems to be a much greater cohesion in so many areas uh, across the pitch that they're comfortable with each other comfortable with the game plan comfortable with changing the game plan if they need to uh, and 
I don't know, it's been a long time since we've been able to talk in Middlestrid this way. Mm. So I know Dan McFarland doesn't like this, because sort of, I think he's made allude, allude to the fact that, oh, don't be saying all these nice things about us. But we have to be, I don't, I don't think we can avoid the fact that they are playing exceptionally well at the moment, and if they continue in this vein, um, they could, uh, yeah, they could, they, could achieve, they could achieve things this season, there's no doubt about it. Well, we shall see, obviously, when they go to Claremont. Really, the proof of the pudding. But again, you, you know, you could see them coming away from Claremont, couldn't you? With something, instead of just getting. You know, Let's uh, calm down. We're getting very positive here. No one mustn't do this, but. Um, but I mean, I, I find I was running through my head. Okay, you were bringing up all the positives. What, what were the negatives? No. So you think you think about the line out. Well, but the they, they actually scored a try off a line out that they lost. Yeah, they did, which was which was terrible. Uh, very very poor from Connick because they just didn't. It was mm. like very it's like it's like something from you know June. Very simple sort of basic level of rugby. When you start, you win the line out. You got to secure the ball. They just didn't bother. They were all standing looking at it, allowing the Connick to score. That gave Ulster a foothold in the game, which in fairness they hadn't looked as if they'd had up mm. to that point. So, but again, I'm just making the point that even when. Other sides do make errors. They can still, they can still find a way to punish them, and that was, that was punishment. That that, ch- that also changed the game because I think it's fair to say Connacht had largely been dominating the game up until that point. And you're right, they did go after Ulster's lineout, and they did make a mess of it on several occasions. And there were a few crooked throws too. Um, but no, no, I, I, I just, I just think at the moment they seem to be playing very very well and we've seen that particularly in these European games um, the away games there just seems to be this idea this notion within them that if you, they are going to lose it's going to be very very difficult to actually beat them Two players who came back for this game <coughs> both in the back three Will Allison and Rob Balakoon both had fantastic games Johnny how did you feel they went from ground level almost? <laughs> <laughs> um, from ground level one thing that you notice about Balakoon is how much bigger he's got. I think he obviously used the summer and then his break from inju- or with injury originally to uh, definitely bulk up a bit, but he's not lost any pace. That was my mm. most striking observation from being that close. Um, I thought they both did really, really well. You know, I think now if you're looking at the back three, I think the back three is them plus Stockdale, really. Obviously, we'll see with... Um, Lee Lewick's injury didn't look didn't look good and that's probably going to take him out of the mix for that but I think that's the makings of a really nice back three it's got a real ability essentially because you can't kick it to anyone without the fear of counter-attack because they're all such good counter-attacking mm-hmm. players the thing that probably impresses me most about Balakun still is just how and I, I know I've said this before but still just how clever he is defensively like for somebody that you're talking about having been playing fairly without any disrespect a fairly low level of rugby fairly recently he's so accomplished defensively and we've talked about the the sevens aspect of that but like he just he uses the touchline so well and you know there was one tackle he made where he just got underneath um so I can't even remember who Kill it was. Blade. Yeah, I got underneath him so well, so cleverly, with so little margin of error. He's he he looks like somebody who's, who plays far beyond their years because he has so much raw, I suppose, physical ability. But that's not what makes him such a good player. That win 
book ended 2019 very nicely whenever you think about how Ulster started the year by losing 40 points to 7 in Dublin against Leinster to finishing it with a nice 35-3 win over Connacht. Um, I posted a question on Twitter earlier asking how many players did Ulster use in 2019. Would either of you like to hazard a guess before I reveal the answer? And we're talking about 2019 as a whole, not just... As a, ca- as a calendar this, year. As a calendar than, year rather than the season. You really don't get out on Saturday nights, do you? <laughs> uh, no, I wouldn't even hazard a guess. I'll say 44. You're actually right if we were talking about this season. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. Rigid. It's 57. 57. In the <clears throat> calendar year. So 13... 13 players played last season. Last year, they haven't played this year. Didn't play this season. Now, we are including players such as David Busby, Jack Owens, um, the guys who played down the RDS a couple of weeks ago, you know, guys who have only yeah. made one appearance. But <coughs> if you're talking about all the players that Ulster have used this season, they've used 57. Um, their record over the calendar year 19 wins, 7 defeats, 1 draw that's a 70.37% win percentage, unbeaten at home 13 wins out of 13 and they play 3 knockout games 1 win and 2 defeats how would you sum up 2019 for Ulster both in terms of results and how they've finished in games and where they have gone from the start of 2019 to right now as, as a squad I think it's been a year of huge promise. I think you look at probably the end of 2018 with those games against the Scarlets is really the launching pad into where they are now. I suppose that was when they started to look like the team that they have throughout 2019, so a little bit before the calendar year began. I think probably discounting that Leinster match at the start, they've really had, I suppose the Glasgow semi-final mm. as another game where you would say they just didn't you know didn't show up obviously unfortunate that it was the second biggest game of the season really um, other than that I think as Michael probably alluded to earlier you don't expect them to take nothing from a game anymore to get blown out of a game anymore which is a sign of progress I think if you're looking at players Balakun being the prime example really um, of somebody that's progressed a pace Eric O'Sullivan you'd have to put in that mix as well and I think Tom O'Toole Tom O'Toole yeah certainly and actually maybe Rob Little I know he's injured yeah. yet again but the way he started this season um, he was more than meriting his starting place looking really really sharp one, one of the things that I find interesting was that people always talk about, you know, oh, look at Leinster. Leinster used 50-odd players in one season. Leinster used, what, 60 players in a calendar year. I think it's actually interesting. If you compare Ulster's squad this season, have used 39 players, not including the World Cup players, whereas Leinster have only used, I think it's 35. So Ulster have actually used more players in their squad this season than Leinster have outside of their Ireland internationals, which I think is quite an interesting comparison between the two. I suppose the problem being Leinster had 10 more World Cup players than, uh, than Ulster did, but I think you're probably looking at it in, and we'll talk about you know comparing yourselves to Leinster. The issue is you might be comparing yourself to a team that 
possibly won't lose a game all season. <laughs> so it's unfortunate that they're both your nearest neighbour and, as we've seen really over the past decade rather than the past year, the team that's in the way um, in terms of winning silver. They still have to come to Kingspan Stadium this season. That's actually... True. But... I think it... You know, if you're talking about, I think I saw somebody offering odds of sixteen to one that they were going to go unbeaten all season, and I suppose it's the last game, and normally we know what happens. Yeah, yeah. Leicester are already qualified for the playoffs. They have other things in their mind. Um, you think that Ulster would hopefully at that stage already be qualified for the playoffs? Well, it's already be qualified so for the have. playoffs. You would think, but they might not be nailed into the mm. home quarterfinal rather than the away quarterfinal, yeah, which is. Uh, which is what you would want them very much to have. Well, just on that point, Ulster now have a 12-point buffer over Glasgow in terms of finishing third. Now, we know we they want to finish second. I'm not denying that. But in terms of getting playoff place first and foremost, they've got a very healthy buffer going into 2020 yeah. already. But the Cheetahs have games in hand. The Cheetahs have games in hand in terms of the race for second, but in terms of making sure they're in the playoffs mm. as a bare minimum. Yeah, 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 they're, yeah. they're sitting very nicely co- going into mm. the new year. Yeah. And without banging the same drum over and over again, the Cheetahs have the Kings three times, yeah. Zebra twice and Dragons twice. Um, but Ulster still have Glasgow to play twice, and they've got the Cheetahs here. Mm. And as you say, Adam, they've got that buffer. Mm. So yeah. like, it's very, very much in their own hands. The issue is obviously going to be whether they're playing here again as they were last year or whether they're going away to what could be any combination of mm. Murrayfield, Thoman Park, Clan <laughs> um, Athlete, any of those teams that are all like very much bunched up in that conference, whereas um, Ulster's conference is pretty much already Leinster have won it. Ulster and the Cheetahs look like they're vying for. <clears throat> second and third and unless Glasgow put a serious run of results together those are your three playoff teams I quite like the Nando's and Clemethley do you not want to don't want to go back <laughs> no to be honest because I, I just generally take against any place that uh, refuses us service after a game so true at whatever it was half ten at night <laughs> Other restaurants are available. So with 2019 firmly in the rearview mirror, it's time for us to move on to a new year in 2020, which starts as we ended last year with another Interpro. This time it's Munster making their way up north all the way from Limerick, looking to win in Belfast for the first time since October 2016. From a team selection perspective, just get this out of the way now, Munster head coach Johan van Graan has already admitted those who played against Connacht won't play this weekend, and those who I don't think they had any internationals playing against Leinster, um, but that would seemingly rule out Chris Farrell, Dave Kilcoyne, Jean Klein and CJ Stander. However, it does mean that they are likely to have Andrew Conway, Rory Scannell, Keith Earls, Connor Murray... Niall Scannell, John Ryan and Captain Peter O'Mahony available for Friday night's game. I would imagine Joey Carberry will probably play some part after coming on off the bench against Leinster. Um, do sorry, we, Michael, you do were Do we know the state of Peter O'Mahony's injury, though? Because remember he pulled up prior to the Saracens game. Um, I don't think it was said it was a serious injury at the time, but I've not heard a word about it since, has anybody? So. No, because I think it obviously... It was not the most talked about thing after the Monster Saracens no, game for no, for no, obvious no. reasons, and then 
going into a period where he wouldn't have been playing anyway, I suppose. They also very much have a huge, huge game the following week, which is a total, they've got to, they've got to win it. So whether indeed Johan van Graan does decide to err slightly more on the side of caution, we don't know. I know we want to get some of these people on the park, but we really don't know what way he's going to approach this. I don't think... He's very, he quite often reveals his hand. I think all he said is who's not coming. Yeah. Which. Um, but like, but like we've been saying, mm. you know, Conference B is so tight in the Pro Fourteen, well, he can't to, afford can't. to take weeks off. No, I'm really. not suggesting he does that at all. But the the importance of the following game is is just you know with with Saracens, what are they only a point behind Munster in that group? I mean, that 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 that's 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 a season definer right there and then. So whether he does look at it and think, well, you know what, we don't. We don't tend to do very well up here. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I doubt it. I'm sure they'll come, you know, pretty strong. But um, this is looming over them. I mean, it has to be a consideration. Uh, that it, it's just so important to them. They lose it and they're gone. Really, that's it in Europe. Ulster have held all their internationals back. Jacob Stockdale, Ian Henderson, Jordy Murphy all sat out the first two interpros. So it looks very likely they're going to be involved this weekend. It looks like it's going to be quite an interesting one. Johnny, where do you see the winning of this one being? I think this game might be a cracker, to be honest. Um, Ulster are going to need to get another big performance out of Nick Timoney. I thought he was good. I thought he was very good off the bench, actually, on Friday night. But assuming that Marcel's not there for them, then obviously everybody has to shoulder more of the load. Timoney has to play well, but a very different player. So you're going to see guys like... Marty Moore, Jack McGrath have to become much more involved in the ball carrying game. We know Monster are going to be physical side, obviously. Um, I think, given the two lineups that we're going to have it, and the looming Six Nations selection squad, it should be quite an intense battle. Like, I think Rob Herring, as an example, is somebody that can probably put himself front of the queue to start a Six Nations game almost and him, him and Scarl going head yeah. to head which mm. looks likely to be happening would yeah, be a massive and of course Conor Murray we expect with John Cooney yeah. another yeah. one which kind of jumps out uh, off the page as well I think that that's one that I'm particularly going to enjoy watching uh, just to see uh, how the two guys go the form scrum off in Ireland and the established number one choice for the uh, for the national side, um, assuming of course uh, he plays, which I'm sure he will, as he's had no part to play over the previous uh, two weekends of Inter Pro action, and that'll be absolutely uh, a lot of people will be watching it just to see how John goes. Um, but you're right, the Scandal Herring one is is another big, big, very, very tasty. Uh, and it's an awful shame that we couldn't have seen Marcel against CJ Stander, um, which we weren't going to because CJ's not coming. He's been We've been told he's, only, he's going to play against Racing, but that would have been uh, an interesting one. But I think you're right. I think it's going to be a good game. The last time they played down at Thoman, it was a good game as well, and it was kind of fairly full on. And um, I think there's going to be <coughs> no disrespect to Connacht, a stronger, much stronger Munster team that's here, and a much, much more competitive Munster team. Because I think with all our naturally, you know, our great, wonderful optimism and, and getting awfully excited about what we saw, you were looking at a Connacht team there bereft about six players they need um, to, to, to function uh, efficiently and properly that they just don't have due to, mostly due to injury um, and I think this one will be um, a very very uh, significant test 
Brodster's ambitions and indeed everything we've talked about in terms of how they're approaching games and playing in them. Do you think Andy Farrell, because I'm imagining he's going to be here, do you think he'll be looking at this as a big indicator who will start that first Six Nations game between Cooney and Murray, or is that putting too much on one performance? I think they're probably still, and this has always been the case, that our bank of data, if you like, is so much smaller than the coaches because we're judging them solely on games, whereas they're seeing them on training every single day. That's still going to be the case building into what will be a two-week camp prior to this, this well, a one-week camp and then a one-week of game build-up. But you're also going off the form from really the previous three months, if you want to be kind, possibly 15 months, if you want to be a bit more uh, realistic about it. So, like, I don't think it'll be a case of everything will hinge on these 80 minutes but I think if Cooney massively outplays Murray that could be the last sort of box to tick I suppose because we've spoken before about how he's making an almost unanswerable case and I think if he was to be on the same pitch and play considerably better then that would really be the last sort of box to tick I feel like I want to pick you up on something you were you were saying there earlier about Nick Temeny and guys having to shoulder a bit more of the load because Marcel's out how would you approach it from an Ulster perspective would you try and share out Marcel's load between several guys in that pack or would you put it all onto one guy as the replacement number 8 no I certainly wouldn't I certainly wouldn't put it all on replacement number 8 because you can't ask somebody who I suppose throughout this season really has been almost Ulster's fifth choice back rower really when everyone's fit and available and say that you have to replicate the workload of not just one of the best number eights in Europe but a number eight who's tireless like his carry and tackle combined numbers um, every week essentially are off the charts but you can almost not get around it you're never going to be a better team without him but like as I say if you give say five more carries to Marty Murray because um, you know <laughs> so some some games you'll see Marty Murray with four carries mm. and then normally it's when Marcel and McCluskey are playing and then w- when he's not there you might see him go up to seven or eight you could see um, Jack McGrath go up to seven or eight Jordy Murphy is another one who sometimes we see carry the ball three or four times and other times you might see him carry the ball 11 or 12 times. So, you know, it's getting everybody up to those, I, I I suppose, higher echelons of their numbers. Alan O'Connor has to come into that frame as well. Um, I think he will probably start with Handy because he's been playing exceptionally well. But he, he can also step up. And he's quite a quite a useful ball carrier as well. So he can also, he can be shared. It'll have to be shared. You can't just say, you're Marcel yeah. today because that's not feasible. Because one person isn't. And they have their own different type of game. But I think they're just going to have to share that burden. And they do have the personnel if all these people are fit uh, to do that. I guess just made an assumption Alan Connor will play. I think he probably would play on the basis of the form he's showing as opposed to Kieran Treadwell. But I hadn't mentioned it actually. I, um, I forgot, but I thought Alan O'Connor was probably <laughs> Ulster's second best player it's on the good. night. Um, on Friday, I thought it was really, really good. Um, probably really second only to Sean Reedy, I thought. Mm-hmm. And Sean, like Sean Reedy obviously <laughs> had the the big impact because mm-hmm. he had the turnover and he had the um, the eye-catching offload but I thought just from you know throughout I thought Alan O'Connor was really good and he can do more than you know he, he's also puts in usually again if you look 
Al O'Connor's usually always got a big tackle count in a game. Maybe not so many carries, but it's always a big tackle count, so he is working very, very hard. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. He was second in tackles for Ulster on Friday night, yeah. <clears throat> and he was second in metres made in the forwards. Yeah. So massive work rate on both sides of the ball, as you're saying. So he can do that. You know, and, and if you do need to, to bring people in who will up, up the ante in terms of that, well, there's one already. Ready, he's ready made. You don't have to tell him to do it. He's doing it already. In terms of the interpros as a whole, Ulster were talking last week about how they feel like they have to improve their interprovincial record. How they feel like it hasn't been good recently. Obviously, you know, success is comes along with wins, and that happens in interpro games. But our interpro wins essential for you guys is this something that you guys feel like are, are vastly important they are because your extra fixtures are interpros so if you're talking about four years ago five years ago and you were going to say you can lose every interpro but you'll win silverware everybody would have taken that but that's not feasible anymore because you're playing your two bonus fixtures if you like against in this instance Monster and Connaught whereas Cheetahs are playing Kings twice as their bonus fixtures Treviso as example as an example from last year playing Zebra twice so buying Scarlet's last year are playing two bad Welsh teams twice so you don't have the luxury of not winning Interpros because otherwise then you're really starting nine ten points behind the rivals that you're going to have year to year the sort of teams that are similar in where your standings are Glasgow and Edinburgh are the only two teams that really compare because they have the extra games against teams that are of a similar level whereas if you assume that as we can that the Irish teams are always going to be good you can't you know you can't have a bad interpro record essentially now Ulster haven't been too bad because they've won here and they've normally beat Leinster here as Michael says at the end of the season when Leinster don't send up their full team so it hasn't been maybe as bad as you would think but obviously a few of those losses stand out um, you know Connacht Munster won here not that long ago Munster got a draw here not that long ago Leinster won here um, in Leicester's final season I, th- I think and um those are games especially at this time of year where you can find yourself um, I suppose falling falling back into the pack to use this season as an example if you weren't to have a good Christmas now they've had a good Christmas so far and you know we said or I, I said anyway 8 points would be a decent <laughs> 8 points would be the expected return obviously they're already on 6 so you're really looking at 10 points and 10 points would be a fantastic um, Christmas period I think and really negate that sort of worry that um, the Cheetahs have this um, backloaded fixture list well we will move on from that Ulster play Munster on Friday night 7.35pm kickoff at Kingspan Stadium it's heading towards another sellout by all accounts so um, that's a, that's something that we actually neglected to mention from the Connacht game like first sellout since May 2017 which is absolutely massive in my opinion it is and it isn't I don't want to um, I don't want to poo poo the idea but and obviously they didn't sell out the Christmas fixture last year but I also think that 
sometimes I think we can overlook the fact that if such a high percentage of rugby fans in Ulster didn't go away for university, they would probably sell out most of their games. You know, we talked about it for the Harlequins game, where everyone was talking about such a huge travelling support from Ulster, when really it was just people that are by and large already there. You know, so that that fixture to me is one that they should always be selling out because they have a couple of thousand fans back in the country that aren't normally here but that's interesting what you say about it heading towards a sellout this mm. week because most of those people are obviously Went back, back home yeah. by now yeah. well there's the negativity returning to our podcast again nice to, nice to see it just in time for the new year uh, a few listener questions we have already answered a few of these Big Jim asked did Ulster click against Connaught I think we've put that one to bed already um, Harry and Isla's daddy asked assuming everyone is fit who wears the 11, 14 and 15 jerseys for the upcoming big games I think we've addressed mm-hmm. that one as well um, Donald O'Reilly the weekly Donald is back he's been missing for a few weeks I think how far Ulster off Leinster I think we've addressed that one too Donald um, but Derry Gassman bringing all the Christmas spirit and cheer to the podcast what did you guys get for Christmas and have you any rugby related New Year's resolutions so Michael what, what did you get for Christmas anything nice oh when you reach my age, you don't really get anything nice for Christmas anymore, really. Um, I just got some books and some clothes, you know. It's not, uh, that, that, that's it, really. Uh, gosh, I hope I'm not forgetting anything here, am I? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that was pretty much it. Uh, I actually got Joe Schmidt's book. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, say no more. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, and what does, was the does other someone one? not like you? Uh, <laughs> actually, I, I I chose that one myself. Oh, okay. That was before <laughs> I read the reviews, that was from my father-in-law. And I hadn't the heart to say, look. <laughs> anyway, and what uh, was the any other any rugby-related New Year's resolutions? Uh, oh, uh, to continue not playing. How about that? That's about the only <laughs> one. one. Up to fifty-four is fair enough. <laughs> Johnny. Uh, very similar to Michael, I got uh, sports books and clothes for Christmas. I got a nice new watch from my mum. That was that was nice. Uh, rugby resolutions for the new year. Um, it's completely out of my control, but I'd like to go to a ground that I haven't been to before. Um, didn't have great success last year. What with the quarterfinal being in the Aviva, and then getting Harlequins and. Claremont again in the, in the pool. What am I talking about? Every, every ground in Japan was a new one. But, yeah. um, <laughs> you have done it. You have done it. But, yeah. well, no, this is 2020. Any, any about excuse it. to throw that World Cup trip in again? No, not at all. Not at all. I'm <laughs> sick of talking about it because the amount of people that I've seen over the last two weeks that I haven't seen since, and you're just giving the same how was Japan stock answer. Yeah. But um, no, I would like to get to some new grounds, um, which is obviously all pretty much dependent on Ulster making the knockouts of competitions or getting a favourable draw for next year's Champions Cup. I got a Fitbit watch from my brother which either suggests that I'm not doing well in my fitness journey or uh, I'm doing well enough I just need to track it but um, I also got a lamp which suggests that I'm heading the same way as other people and that I'm a very adult person to buy gifts for now like, I was going to say like, what's wrong with the lamp I thought there's, that, a, I thought that would be there's absolutely nothing wrong with the lamp, the lamp I, is, I really uh, like the lamp but the lamp's fantastic um, it, it also suggests that my years of getting toys and sweets are over and <laughs> I just can't deal with that right now right. don't worry you <laughs> um, will <laughs> new, 
New Year's resolutions um, stop clogging up our Sky Plus with recorded games that I end up not watching because mm. I don't have time. That's probably a good one. Funny, that's uh, that's probably my wife's uh, resolution <laughs> for me rather than my own, yeah. Guys, we'll round things off with your moment of 2019. I asked you well in advance to prepare one, so if you don't have it ready, you've failed. So, Johnny, moment of 2019 for you personally. Um, you use mine up now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think uh, seeing Lele Faro play at the World Cup for the Wallabies um, not to go back to Japan not to go back to Japan sorry but I didn't want to go for the obvious one of the quarterfinal but I mean the quarterfinal is obviously right up there as well just because it was um, a great occasion I suppose and to be honest probably the first great occasion I think it would be fair to say that I've covered Ulster I suppose the last one that you would cite as a great occasion it was probably the quarterfinal here and I wasn't working at that I was just there so um, both defeats anyway you <laughs> <laughs> get used to it <laughs> Michael moment of 20 well he's kind of taken my thunder I thought he would um, I don't have a moment you can't possibly have moments. so many games you're watching so much stuff but I have several moments the quarterfinal is one of them because the buzz it was just a great thing to have that back again it hadn't been around for quite a number of years and despite the defeat, the feeling was that <coughs> given <coughs> excuse me, a really good account of themselves in a cracking game, they should have won. But it, that, that, that stands out, even though it's blindingly obvious. Um, and that, 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 that you can't really, I don't think I can replicate that in anything else that really happened. Just, just to achieve that, just to go down there and, uh, as we expected from every single time they play Leinster, not to lose against that Leinster team to probably lose very heavily and then actually if you like blow it uh, even though that's a negative there was there was enough there to be relatively positive about I think as well I and just it, think everything, it's hard to get away from that like everything during that week felt like a test week obviously yeah. I suppose with it being in the Viva that probably mm. helped that but the intensity of mm-hmm. the build up the um, I suppose attitude of the players about the importance of the game and then the actual game itself, the atmosphere, you know, mm. everything about that felt like a test, which is really, really rare for Pro 14 sites. Oh, it's, yes, extraordinarily rare. It, it did feel that way. Uh, and to be at the stadium that day felt you know, not unlike, for instance, say, when Aaron played the All Blacks when they beat them there. It, there was that uh, hugely intense um, atmosphere. And it was just great to feel that again because I thought probably like a lot of people that was gone uh, probably for a very very long time it would be irresponsible if we didn't mention Mike Lowry's tackle on Bakatawa in the oh yes in the Rassingu absolutely absolutely smallest man against the biggest as our with Gareth not here we may still our our Mm. favourite player of of the podcast and that should just about wrap us up for the year Thank you very much to all of you for listening to us throughout 2019. We hope to have your company again in 2020. We've got some big plans for the podcast, so make sure you keep listening right into the new year. From Jonathan Bradley. Thank you very much. Cheers. From Michael Sadler. Thank you, and happy new year to one and all. And from myself, Adam McKendry, a very happy new year to all of our listeners, and thanks very much for listening. (laughs) 